Chapter Thirty Two of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Thirty Two. Miss Jackson, on her return from the Treasury Department one afternoon, inserted her latchkey in Mrs. Colson's front door with a gusty sigh. This sigh was as much a matter of habit as the turning of the key, and was intended to signify a protest against the act of living. When she closed the door, leaving herself inside, she repeated it as a matter of course. A number of letters and papers lay on the little hall table, and she turned them over curiously, examining the address of each with care. Miss Jackson did not conduct a voluminous correspondence, but she took an interest in her friends, and therefore never failed to scrutinize the contents of the hall table. A square blue envelope lay at the top of the pile, sealed with gold wax and freighted with perfume. It suggested the romantic side of life, even as a tradesman's envelope beside it proclaimed the prosaic. Miss Jackson read the superscription, raised it inquiringly to her nose, and again perused the address, as though doubting the evidence of her eyes. "'Well, I never!' she said aloud. "'The idea!' A door at her right opened a few inches, and a beckoning hand appeared in the aperture. "'Come in,' said Mrs. Colson in a stage whisper, and Miss Jackson accepted the invitation. "'Did you see it?' continued Mrs. Colson eagerly. She was engaged in making out her monthly bills, but she pushed them aside and hospitably offered her guest a seat on the corner of the box couch. "'He's been here now two years,' she continued, "'and it's the first thing in a woman's writing that has ever come for him. It is a woman, don't you think so?' "'A girl,' rejoined Miss Jackson with some asperity, "'and a foolish one at that, very black ink, broad stub pen, straggling writing sprawling all over the envelope, and perfumed to death. Oh, yes, it's some silly girl. Miss Jackson herself used pale ink, a finely pointed pen, and produced the most delicately minute specimens of shaded Spenserian handwriting. Dear me, said Mrs. Colson, I fear you are right, Miss Jackson. Do you suppose he is going to be married? He has been here so long, and is so regular in his payments, I should dislike to see him a victim to some flighty young thing who doesn't know enough to make him comfortable. Well, said Miss Jackson thoughtfully, I don't know, Mrs. Colson, but it's very easy to tell. Now, if he picks up that letter carelessly and puts it in his pocket without looking at it, that's a sure sign he was expecting it. But if he seems surprised when he sees it and looks at the postmark, by the way, what was it? I entirely forgot to look. I'm not often so careless. Washington, returned Mrs. Colson definitely, posted at 8.50 this morning. I looked. Now, Miss Jackson, if we set the door ajar, we get a good view of the table. I think we are justified under the circumstances, don't you? Oh, by all means, agreed Miss Jackson, her hand on the knob. How is that? About an inch wider. There. Now you sit in the rocker. Here is the evening paper. I'll be busy writing. Several times the front door opened and closed, and the pile of letters dwindled perceptibly. Ahem, said Miss Jackson, lowering the paper a few inches. 
Mr. Marks carefully put his umbrella in the rack and hung up his hat. "'Always so methodical,' murmured Mrs. Colson appreciatively. He then approached the table, glanced without interest at the few remaining letters, appropriated a copy of the Scientific American, and prepared to go upstairs. As he turned away, however, the blue envelope with its decided black characters caught his eye. Mr. Marks hesitated, picked it up gingerly, studied the address incredulously, held it doubtfully before his nose, and finally marched resolutely upstairs, the letter held lightly between his thumb and finger, as though it contained a dynamite bomb which might explode at any moment. "'He's not engaged,' ejaculated Mrs. Colson with a sigh of relief. "'But there's no telling how soon he will be.' "'Well,' said Miss Jackson acidly, "'it's very evident she is taking the initiative. I have my opinion of the girl of the period. She is unwomanly. That's the best I can say for her. Can't you get a little more heat into my room, Mrs. Colson? I could see my breath when I dressed this morning.' "'I'll do my best, Miss Jackson.' returned Mrs. Colson, in tones of suffering forbearance. But the furnace is old, and the landlord won't replace it. I'm sure I burn coal enough, as my bills would testify. It is a hard life, trying to satisfy everybody, and not pleasing anybody. My father owned a hundred slaves, and I— But Miss Jackson departed for her frosty apartment without waiting to hear more. She was familiar with the story of Mrs. Colson's inability to adjust her shoestrings before the war— and knew the formula by heart. Moreover, like many examples of humanity, she was verbose in the recital of her own woes and intolerant of the trials of others. Meanwhile, in the seclusion of his own apartment, Mr. Marks had opened his letter. He did this carefully, inserting a penknife under the flap and running it neatly across the top with a clean, clear cut, in the most approved manner. If the knife shook a little, no one but himself was any the wiser, nor was it a matter of comment to the world at large that he again held the envelope beneath his nose, sniffing eagerly, after the manner of a dog establishing a trail. A long, slow smile of gratified complacency curled Mr. Marks's upper lip as he slowly unfolded his letter. It contained but a few lines, and was signed, Yours distractedly, Christine Gray. Mr. Marks returned the note to its envelope, stroked the little whiskers upon his jawbone, and meditated. The first thing to be done was to answer it, so he laid out pen and ink and a sheet of white foolscap paper. Then he paused suddenly. Christine had used blue paper, small in dimensions and adorned with her monogram. Evidently blue paper was the proper medium for communication between the sexes, and Mr. Marks had none. He was, however, a man of resources. He would borrow from Mrs. Colson. So he again descended the stairs. Through the half-open door he saw the lady seated before her desk with what appeared to his covetous eyes as mountains of blue paper within reach of her hand. He had but to knock or even speak her name, and his quest was ended. This, however, was not his idea of the proprieties of life, so he repaired to the doorstep, rang a violent peal at the bell, and shivered in the east wind until the maid responded, and then inquired for Mrs. Colson, and stalked majestically into the hall, where he preferred his request with stentorian tones and profuse verbiage. His need at once supplied, he returned to his room, sublimely unconscious that every boarder in the house knew he had borrowed blue note-paper, 
and speculated with wondering amusement as to the date of the wedding. Mr. Marks dipped his pen into the ink and wrote, Miss Gray, dear madam, fluently. Then he paused, and, taking up a pencil, made several rough drafts on the sheet of foolscap before transcribing the following words upon the blue paper. It will be convenient for me to be present at your residence at eight o'clock this evening, the tenth instant. Yours composedly, John N. Marks. Composedly, he reflected, applying his tongue to the mucilage of the envelope, is the antonym of distractedly, and I am calm, quite calm. There were many glances directed at Mr. Marks when he appeared at dinner that evening, with every hair standing severely upright, and the shining expanse of his black satin ready-tied cravat relieved by a chaste and elegant gold-plated pin, a dove holding in its mouth an olive branch, from which hung a crystal dewdrop, and he found himself the recipient of much unusual attention, which he endured with lofty condescension. Mrs. Colson, he remarked abruptly as he left the table. I would be obliged if you would place a quart of milk and some ham sandwiches in my room at ten-thirty. By that time I am of the opinion it will be necessary for me to eat again. "'Did you ever?' said Mrs. Colson appealingly. "'Love,' said the old gentleman, with a gruff laugh, "'affects the present generation strangely. In my day it destroyed the appetite.' Now it appears to produce an inward vacuum which is to be filled after a visit to the fair enamorata. Ladies, ladies, you are responsible for much. And the ladies responded with the customary refrain, Oh, General! Mr. Marks walked briskly down the street, occasionally feeling in his pocket to make sure his letter was quite safe. He had no intention of posting it, knowing it would not be delivered until next morning but a small book on etiquette he had recently purchased reiterated that a communication from a lady should be answered at once. Therefore he had replied immediately. For Miss Gray, he said, delivering the blue envelope into the reluctant hand of the boarding-house factotum who had responded to his ring, and turning abruptly away from the open door, as though fearing he would be called upon to explain his motive. On the opposite corner was a drug store and there he directed his steps to wait until Christine should have sufficient time to prepare to receive him. For, he reflected generously, no doubt she would desire to make some slight changes of apparel, some frivolous feminine adornment, and involuntarily his hand sought the dove with the dewdrop. I will wait fifteen minutes, he decided, his eyes on the drugstore clock. But no thought of feminine adornment occurred to Christine, who sat dejectedly in her own room with red eyes and trembling lips. On the table beside her lay a small package addressed to the Honorable Charles Rivers, House of Representatives, also a long white envelope, soiled and creased with much handling, which she glanced at apprehensively from time to time with expressive face. "'Oh, Molly,' she said, "'you might do it for me, you might!' But her sister shook her head. I must go back now, she said, rising. I have been gone nearly an hour, and the day-nurse will wonder what has become of me. You know I took the night duty, but he is so much better that to-morrow I shall tell the doctor only one nurse is necessary. Yes, said Christine, without interest. Oh, Molly, I can't do it, I can't. It isn't a question of what you want to do, Christine, 
said the older girl gravely. It's a question of right and wrong. If you gave those papers to Mr. Rivers on New Year's Day, and I found them in Mr. Lee's pocket two nights later, why, there is something very queer about it, that's all, for Mr. Lee had been ill some days before he was discovered. And then, too, they are important, or he wouldn't be muttering about them in his delirium. I don't know what the proper course would be, but Mr. Redmond is a kind man, I have seen enough of him to know that, and he is Secretary of State, and would undoubtedly know what was best. Well, said the younger girl rebelliously, why don't you give them to him yourself without dragging me into it? Because, said Mary, I was afraid. You have gone your own way lately without regard for me. I had seen the papers in your hands, they were heavy with your perfume. I did not know what an investigation might disclose, for there are things, Christine, which I did not even whisper to myself. Don't, said Christine sharply. Don't, Molly, it's not so. I have been foolish, that is all. Yes, dear, I know. It's all right, it's all over. Perhaps Mr. Marks will explain where he got this envelope. Bring him with you this evening. I will ask Mr. Redmond to see you, and you must tell him your story, just as you told it to me. No one must be shielded, you understand? Oh, Molly, cried Christine, with a burst of tears, he said, he did say, he would return the papers to the State Department, and no one would be any the wiser. It seemed such a natural thing for him to do. But here they are, the hateful things. There must be some mistake. Why, he is a member of Congress, he could not stoop to such things. Mary's mouth hardened, and she picked up the little package contemptuously. I will mail it as I go out, she said slowly. Were you mad, Christine, to accept this necklace and that diamond star? Is there anything more? No, said Christine with a gasp. One was Christmas and one New Year's. The flowers I couldn't keep, except one of each to press. They faded, you know. He wanted to marry me, Mary. Don't look at me that way. Did he say so? He said he loved me, said the girl softly, and of course that's what he meant. Mary Gray turned abruptly to the window and stood a moment in silence. Bathe your eyes, dear, she said gently, and try and control yourself. You wrote to Mr. Marks as I asked you? Yes, Molly, I didn't say what I wanted. I wish Harry was here. And so do I, echoed Mary with a fervent sigh. I must really go, Christine. Do not be later than nine o'clock. The secretary will have finished dinner by then, and ask for me. It's hard, I know, but it will soon be over. Molly, said Christine, with something between a laugh and a sob, you were born centuries too late. You are intended for a Spartan mother. Good-bye. The slipshod servant announced the arrival of Mr. Marks, and produced his note at the same time. She had not thought a special trip upstairs necessary to deliver the letter when it was entrusted to her care, nor did Christine cast more than a cursory glance at the epistle concocted with so much labor. "'If I must, I must,' she said as she went to the closet and got her hat and coat. "'But I assure you,' protested Mr. Marks, "'I know no more of them than you do.' They were walking slowly through Lafayette Park, and he held in his hand the bone of contention in the shape of the long envelope. "'Well,' said Christine sharply, 
you brought them to me yourself and i consider you responsible for all this trouble with your white hyacinths and ossification papers bless my soul exclaimed mr marks astonished i do she repeated irritably would anybody else in the whole world give a package to a girl without knowing what was in it and then say weeks afterwards that he had a half-consciousness of picking up something in the park one rainy night it's just ridiculous that's what it is and what are you going to say to the secretary of state he'll want more than a half-consciousness i fancy really returned the unhappy youth i don't know what to say why do you insist on going it is a most unpleasant expedition we are going said christine grimly so that you may explain to the secretary all about those papers miss gray said mr marks firmly i suggest that we do nothing of the sort why should your sister force us to accede to her views of what is right have we not independent brains of our own i came out to-night with a definitely established purpose in mind i had decided after much thought to make a proposition to you i have long meditated and i have no intention of being diverted therefrom for any reason let us sit down it's cold objected christine and the benches are covered with snow i don't want to sit down mr marks however steered resolutely for a secluded bench which rested upon the shining expanse of a frozen puddle i think this would be a good place to locate he remarked gently pushing his companion into it and seating himself beside her their combined weight was too much for the thin covering of ice and the bench broke through with an unpleasant splashing of muddy water oh dear oh dear wailed christine what a sight my new coat it is immaterial returned mr marks loftily i am about to pay you a high compliment miss gray and should be glad of your undivided attention well said christine resignedly please be quick my feet are freezing mr marks cleared his throat and thrust one hand negligently into the breast of his overcoat after the manner of an orator he much admired the world he began pompously is full of women in some states their preponderance over man according to statistics is little less than terrifying woman is the weaker vessel she is made for man's convenience her lot to walk submissive at his side performing whatever duties fall in her way while he devotes his god-given brain and ability to achieving his ambitions indeed interrupted christine indignantly but mr marks immersed in rhetoric did not hear her sometimes he continued fluently i may say frequently we see unmarried women which of course means that no man has looked with favor upon them it is perhaps their misfortune rather than their fault but you miss gray need fear no such catastrophe from the first my eye has been attracted by you as yours no doubt has been by me according to the laws of affinity upon my word began christine but he silenced her with a wave of his hand certain books he resumed which i have recently consulted tell me that persons of your coloring and figure live long and are healthy therefore i now make you an offer of my hand and heart what do you mean demanded christine vexedly you are talking nonsense mr marks let us go on but mr marks was determined to finish his discourse 
he felt that he had not expressed himself quite happily, and strove to remember the words of his book on etiquette under the heading, Proposals of Marriage. "'Honored lady,' he said eloquently, "'deign to be my wife. I offer you my all, myself.' Here he paused, a victim to memory and innate honesty. "'All except my head,' he added humbly. I have bestowed that upon a scientific society, to be dissected after my death, but what remains is yours. The electric light shone full on Mr. Marks as he made this extraordinary statement, and Christine glanced at the face bent eagerly towards her, with its shining spectacles, its tufts of pale brown whiskers upon the apex of the jawbone, and the curling upper lip, fringed with chapped skin, the result of winter winds. "'I'm sure,' she cried with a hysterical laugh. If I had to marry you at all, I'd much rather do it without your head than with it. Mr. Marks drew back suddenly, as though he had received a slap in the face. Am I to understand that you decline? he said slowly. Something in his voice caused the girl to look more closely at him, and her manner changed. I've hurt you, she said gently. I'm sorry, but I didn't know you really cared. You— you never said a word about loving, you know. It is quite immaterial, he returned, rising stiffly. Let us go on. I will leave you at the door of the Secretary of State if you persist in holding this unnecessary interview, but I firmly decline to accompany you any farther. Christine grasped his arm with a sudden realization of the ordeal before her. Oh, you mustn't, she gasped. You mustn't. What would I do all by myself? Mr. Marks hesitated visibly. Here was the weaker vessel appealing to him for support. If I thought my presence would sustain you, he began, unwillingly conscious of the little hand upon his arm, but you have just convinced me you do not wish my support. The pressure of the hand tightened, and Mr. Marks saw two troubled brown eyes gazing up at him, eyes which brightened as they looked, before they were veiled by the lowering of white lids. The ghost of a dimple played about her cheek, and the red lips curled upward irresistibly. "'If you really loved me, you'd go with me,' she whispered. "'I'm afraid, you know.' Hope sprang up within the bosom of Mr. Marks, and the head consecrated to science was bent eagerly over the weaker vessel created for man's convenience, now walking submissively by his side with meekly downcast eyes. This, indeed, was as it should be. "'I will attend you, honoured madame,' said he, quoting again from his little book, and not daring to trust to original inspirations. "'Pray command me. Be careful, or you'll step in the puddle.' The last sentence was not a quotation from the treatise on etiquette. End of chapter 32